Well, good morning. Welcome uh, this Lord's Day to uh, another gathering of Emmanuel Bible Church. We are uh, so thankful that you are here uh, to fellowship, to sing God's praise, um, and to hear from God's word. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to transition into our time of worship uh, to the scriptures. Now, um, I know you had probably struck up some good conversations. We encourage you to continue those after service. Uh, we have our second hour uh, fellowship classes in Sunday school. And then, uh, and then today we have um, a baptism service uh, following lunch at 1 p.m. So make sure you take part in all that. Strike up those conversations again. Continue uh, to challenge and to encourage and to build up one another in the things of Christ. Well, we have just begun our study in the book of Job. If you'll turn there to the book of Job, it's, uh, it's the book that is just before Psalms. So if you open your Bible somewhere a little left of the middle, you'll probably have to go a little left of that, and you end up in the book of Job. And last week, <clears throat> we looked at, um, at Job as a picture of what life should be. And you are familiar with the life and the story of Job. I think most of you are. If, if you're not, then I would be a little bit surprised because most of us are very familiar um, with the story of Job. He is a righteous and good man, and then he will suffer in a way, in a manner, and to a degree that is unconscionable to us. I mean, he literally loses everything in a day, and I was hoping today to walk through uh, both the heavenly council and all of his suffering, but I think that's going to be too much for us today. We'll look at that uh, next time we're together. But the question that comes out of Job, and that is the real-life question for all of us, is how do we understand God's power and His goodness as it relates to us, as it relates to suffering? This morning, our topic in the message title is Suffering and Sovereignty. Suffering, we know for certain there is suffering. We've experienced some. Maybe some of you have experienced much And we know that it goes on all around us. No human being is untouched by suffering. But sovereignty, if God could stop it, why doesn't he? Now listen, let me me say a couple of things. It is a, a, a monotheistic problem. It is a monotheistic problem. If you don't believe there's a God, there's not really a problem. Everything's chance anyways. Bad things just happen. Period. It's random. If you believe that there's other forces, like the devil is just about as strong as God and he's always fighting God and it's a back and forth punching battle, and that you kind of believe that God will eventually win, but the devil has his due, he, he gets his way sometimes, that presents a little bit of a problem, but I, I think you could at least say, well, see, the devil's just winning right now. You have someone to blame. If you're a, a spiritualist or a, an, an animist, right, or you believe that there's like these spiritual forces or other gods, right, a pantheist, you believe that there's so many different things and there's so many different forces at work in this universe, then again, you have explanations. But if you are a monotheistic follower of God in the scriptures, it presents, with, it presents us with a problem, the problem of pain, in God's absolute sovereignty. How can he be in perfect control and bad things still happen? It's a legitimate question and one that, that Job is taking head on. And I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure we'll be that satisfied with the final conclusions. Because the conclusion of it all is going to be that God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he literally allows bad things to happen 
to good people. This is a problem that, that different writers, um, even monotheistic writers, people that believe that there's one true God, have struggled with. And I've mentioned him before, but Rabbi Harold Kushner, back maybe a couple decades ago, wrote a New York Times bestseller, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in it, he is trying to figure out, okay, if God is all-powerful and he is allegedly all-good, how can those things merge when terrible things like the loss of the rabbi's son? He lost his son when the son was pretty young. It's a terrible tragedy in his life. And the rabbi's conclusion was either God is powerful but not quite good enough, or he's absolutely good but not quite powerful enough, and that's where he lands. That God is really good, but he can't make everything perfectly good. He's not that powerful. And I think that's a deficient view of the God of our scriptures. It's a deficient view and a dissatisfying view for all those that are men and women of faith. We want to look to the scriptures and believe that God is powerful, all-powerful, that he is all good, that nothing good comes except by his hand, but that he is in control in his ultimate goodness, even over those things that are not pleasant. And that's a euphemism, because we're going to see that Job's life doesn't take a turn that's just not pleasant but it is absolutely catastrophic. So as I said last week, we left off Job, an introduction to Job as what life should be. In fact, he's the story of the good guy wins, right? He's the Psalm 1 man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but he delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on his law day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in a season. The leaf does not wither. And that last phrase, in all that he does, he prospers. That's Job. And if, if the story of Job ended from the verses we read last week, we'd say amen. It is just a historic affirmation of Psalm 1 that the righteous prosper, period. God blesses those that walk in his ways, period. But we know the story of Job and the narrative is about to shift tragically and gravely. Job is a great man who is great because he is good. But will Job continue to be a good man if he ceases to be a great man? His immense and tragic trial will begin in the throne room of God. And that's the portion of Scripture in Job that we're going to look at this morning, at the throne room of the Lord of the universe. And we find that God, in His sovereign throne room, He's the one that determines the fate and fortune of all men, including the godly man, Job, who is about to suffer in ways that we can't possibly imagine if such things would happen to us. And that's come. it's about suffering and God's sovereignty. Look at, look at the first, um, uh, verse 6 through 12. Let me read it for us, and we'll try to unpack it as we go. Job 1, starting in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and says, Does, does Job fear God for no reason? 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to this particular portion of the book of Job, still the introductory matters, Lord, we are um, confronted with our view of your sovereignty. What, what does it mean that you are God above all gods, that you know the beginning from the end? Lord, we need to know what you mean by your own declaration of your sovereign power and authority and rule over everything that is in this universe. Because, Father, we, we recognize that therein lies our capacity to worship, not just when things are good, but when everything has gone wrong. Father, I imagine that in this room, and those that are listening um, on the audio, there are individuals who love you, but who are struggling with difficulties, with struggles and pains. Father, we know that the only hope and comfort is that there must be a God who is in control. And it, and it, and it bothers us that your control might include the use of dark forces like Satan, and the use of pain, the use of tragedy and loss. But Father, bend our will to be submissive to your revelation and help us not in pride to demand that your revelation change to comfort our will and help us to be submissive to the greatness of our God for you are good and you are powerful and we can trust you to never lose us. So we trust in your grace. Comfort us and teach us this morning and in our study of Job. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're talking about sovereignty. Oh, sorry. Sovereignty and suffering. And this is where we're going to go this morning. We're going to talk about God and how he holds court and then how he commends Job, how Satan doubts or questions Job's character. And then God authorizes a particular test. We're literally just, just studying the, the courtroom of God as we consider the issue of sovereignty and suffering. And we begin with God holding court in verses 6 and 7. Look at those verses. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answers the Lord and says, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Uh, there's a few characters that we need to get uh, in our minds as God holds session. This is the courtroom of God, or maybe better yet, is the throne room of God, and He is clearly enthroned. We'll get to the Lord in a moment. But let's begin first with those that are His attendants, those that show up. Verse 6 says that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The phrase sons of God in the Old Testament can refer to human beings because we are created in His image, right? It just means that we are derived from the Lord, right? It can also refer to angelic beings, and that's clearly what is referenced here. The sons of God, then, would be sons of God created by God. They are derived from God, even though they are spiritual beings, in a different category than us as physical beings. 
Nevertheless, they are created beings and still under the sovereign control of God. That's why the way that Scripture presents this is there's a day. And we don't know if this is every day. We don't know if this is a particular day or a special day. But the sons of God, the angelic beings, come and present themselves before their Lord. It opens with that clear expression of divine authority. It's, it's expressed in a way that we understand that these angels are called by their superior to his throne to, re- to give a report on what they're doing, what they're about, and to receive instruction on what they are to continue to do. It's the sons of God that show up to report. It's not God like, oh, I'm desperate for some, some help and answers. They have to show up to his throne room to tell them what is going on. Think about this. The worst day in Job's existence, his earthly existence, the worst day begins with this council of angels presenting themselves, reporting before the Lord of the universe. So there's the sons of God. Secondly, there is the Satan. The Satan. And I know you might be like, why are you calling him the Satan? Should we say, hey, thanks to the Adam for, you know, for uh, presiding for us this morning in worship? Or oh, that was nice. The Nam was preaching. Like, like, do we refer to ourselves with a definite article? No, we don't. But the scriptures do. The reason why I'm saying that is because the term Satan, right, um, is a term that means accuser or adversary. And here in the Hebrew, um, ha-satan means that the, that, the, that the author has intentionally put the definite article in front of it. We could translate it literally, the Satan. I think it's referring to that one being, the devil himself. I, I think it's clearly that. But my point is that the emphasis of the writer is to say that this is his job. This is his title. This is his description. What does he do? He comes to accuse to be the adversary. Now, there's a question of whether or not this is normal for Satan to have to appear before the Lord. Perhaps it is, or perhaps occasionally he does. I don't know. The scriptures don't give us all of that detail. I imagine that it must be somewhat normal because it makes sense to me, at least to me, because if all the angelic beings are presenting themselves before the Lord, Satan was a fallen angel. And if God is supreme over him, with absolute authority over him, and he doesn't do whatever he wants, he's not a free agent to go about and do anything that he desires without the Lord's permission. It makes sense that even in his sin and his evil, he must present himself before the Lord. So here he is, a fallen angel, and he comes to present a report before the Lord. Because God is still his Lord. Even in his adversarial role, he is merely a vessel or an instrument of God's sovereign will. If that's blowing your mind, then, then you know, let it be blown. That's what scripture seems to attest, and it's kind of odd. And I get it, right? Because like, most of us grew up with almost a dualistic attitude about life and the universe. There is a, there is a powerful God that is all good, and there's powerful Satan is all bad and they're battling it out and and for the most part we hope and believe that God will win but in between that's why all these bad things happen it's not the view of scripture and it's not the view of Job the British parliament um, when they talk about the government they mean the current government as it is composed by the majority party did you know that 
So there is a majority party, and because of the majority, they assign tasks to different individuals. They form the current government. That's what the parliament in Britain will say. The minority party, they are referred to as Her Majesty's loyal opposition. Isn't that interesting? That, that is literally how they're referred to, as Her Majesty's loyal opposition. They oppose the government. Not, not they don't oppose all of Britain. They mean that they oppose the government as currently constituted by the majority party. They oppose them. In fact, they're trying to unseat them. But ultimately and unquestioningly, they are to work in subservience to the crown. Do you get that? They literally have a role in government to be its opposition to the ruling class, to the ruling uh, body. But even in their opposition, their ultimate authority and subservience goes to the crown itself, to the queen, to the majesty. I think that's a good illustration of what this is. Satan is the accuser. He is the adversary. But the point is God's sovereignty embraces all things, good things and bad things, holy things and even sinful things. God reigns over all, and even Satan is merely God's Satan, an agent, an instrument in the hands of a sovereign God. Uh, Martin Luther used to say, the devil is still God's devil. He's not independent. He doesn't get to do what he wants. He's not nearly as powerful as God. No, he can only do as the Lord presents itself. And I think as this entire passage unpacks, you'll see that that is the way that the scripture is written over and over again to, to emphasize the fact that there is only one God and he is the one God in control. Let me say this. If you, if you are to recount the story of Job to like one of the kids in the Sunday school class and you're just rattling it off the top of your head and you would know some of the things that are taking place in the, in the narrative. Does your narrative sound kind of like, you know, Job was a good man, he's a godly man, and oh, that Satan, that bad, that bad being, he messed everything up? Or does it sound like what the scriptures will report, that God is in control? We'll say more about that. The third uh, uh, actor in this opening scene in the throne room of God is God himself, and, and by God himself, I mean the sovereign of the universe. They come to present themselves, it says, before the Lord, before the one that is the Lord. And the entire passage is arranged, arranged in a way to emphasize that there is only one ruler. There's only one sovereign. There's only, and when we use the term sovereign, if that is somewhat new or kind of not quite well formed in you, it means that that person literally controls or has authority over everything. And when we're talking about God as the sovereign, we mean that he is in control and sits as ruler and dictates. Yes, he, he authorizes and commands everything that takes place. The biblical version of what is taking place in the throne room is that God is in complete control and has absolute authority. Everything that happens is initiated by God and by God alone. Verse 7 says that the Lord says to Satan, who says to whom? The Lord says to Satan, from wherever you come, and Satan needs to respond. He says to the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. He comes to report himself because that's what he does. He's up to no good. We know that. He's like a lion, right? 
a roaring lion, prowling, looking for someone to devour, but he cannot devour unless the king authorizes him to do so. So how will we understand then the spiritual governance of the world? I gave you some options already, right? Polytheism, animism, that there's a whole bunch of different forces at work, and then we hope that the good guys will beat the bad guys, right? That's like your, um, your family-friendly um, Japanese animation films, right? All these little spirit beings, radish spirits, stuff like that, walking around, being helpful. In other spirits, not so helpful. That's animism. That's the belief that there's all these powers behind the scenes. And that's why the world is so confusing and bad things can happen even to good people. Then there's dualism. And we talked about that. That God is strong, but so is the devil. And it's God versus the devil. It's the devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder. Both of them telling us what to do. And both of them having somewhat equal opportunity to determine the fate of your life in the universe. The result of dualism is constant anxiety. Because at any given battle, you don't know who's going to win. Right? Because even if God, we trust, will win the war, then in the meantime, there's a lot of battles that he's probably going to lose. And part of that battleground might be my own soul. Might be my own life. Might be the difficulties and the tragedies that I'm going to have to face. We are powerless and hopeless in the moment if we're dualists. And there is monism. The idea that the world is governed by one God. That's what I think scripture reports. This is the view of the Jewish people, the Muslim people, the Christian people. There's only one God and he is in control. But once we say that, depending on which of those world religions you ascribe to, you mean that God is distant or that he is cold and detached. He has a law and you don't obey the law, then you're done. Or you mean that even in his absolute sovereignty, his sovereignty over good and over bad, his intentions are ultimately and infinitely good. His power is ultimately and infinitely endless. And this narrative in the book of Job opens with this court scene because it's trying its best to place emphasis on the unquestionable sovereign control of God enthroned. He's in session. And all the other spiritual attendants are there at his whim to serve his purposes, including the Satan, the accuser, the adversary. If we don't hear that, we might be confused in terms of what in the world is going on. How did Satan get in and how he's so powerful that he gets to bust in on the things that God is trying to do that's good? He's not busting in on anything. God's the one that's in absolute control. God holds court, right? So God owed court, verse 8, God commends Job. And the Lord said to Satan, verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? I want you to take note here, right? You need to recognize that these words are what initiates the cataclysm of the tragedy of Job's life. It wasn't Satan. Satan didn't show up and go, hey, God, you know, I was walking around the earth and I was knowing this one dude named Job. He acts like he's righteous, but I don't know, man. Like it's not, it's not Satan even trying to, to figure out a way for God 
to, you know, to divert his attention in a way that will allow him to do something wicked. This is God. Who speaks to whom? The Lord speaks to Satan and says, have you considered? He is literally saying, hey, have you put some thought? Have you put it in your heart to think about Job and his particular devotion to me? So who's initiating the potential testing of this godly man? God the sovereign is. The king is. It begins with God, and it begins with him extolling Job. He says a couple of things that are quick and easy. He calls him my servant. He says, my servant, Job. Not just the angelic beings that serve God, but even every part of his creation, including every human being. Every human being is meant to be a servant of God Almighty. And Job is one of those. Right? We are his God is not ours to command. Right? Servant and master make clear delineations of which direction authority flows. Job is not in charge. And have you considered my friend? Could he, could he have said that? He could say that. Because in a lot of ways, God is Job's friend. But he calls him specifically my servant. Right? Just as Satan, as even as diabolical as he is, ultimately remains his subservient vessel his servant he says he is my servant and he says there is none like him there's none like him the wording is there is none like him on earth we already established last last week that job is a real person but he is a uniquely godly man he is a marvel a generational marvel he doesn't come around often in fact, when Ezekiel 14 talks about, man, if, uh, if that Israel is so wicked that even if the godliest men were there, they could not rescue the nation. And the three men that Ezekiel mentions, or actually God mentions in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 14, is even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there, their godliness would not prevail over your wickedness. Judgment would still come to the nation. So he is numbered amongst Noah and Daniel. And of these individuals, if you think about it, they are generationally separated. There's no one like him on, on earth. I think, I think it's, you know, it sounds like good hyperbole, like something you would say, oh, this guy is the best pastor on earth. Probably not, right? Maybe in your own understanding, maybe that's what you're trying to say. But there's a potential that God is absolutely true. There might be no other human being like Job in terms of what is commendable of his godliness, right? Of his willingness to look to the Lord. And in that reality, the blamelessness and uprightness of him, the fact that he fears God and turns away from evil, that's the next part. That he's blameless and upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. Those are literally the same phrases that describe Job in verse 1. Look up there. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was what? Blameless and upright. That's exactly what God says. One who feared God and turned away from evil. That's exactly what God says. He is saying, there's no one like my servant. He is, he is unique in this universe at this moment. Because he loves the Lord so dearly. He's so careful and blameless and again, we didn't say that he was sinless, and I don't think God is saying that he is sinless. He is saying that there's nothing that you could point to and say, you know, this is an issue in his life. He is above reproach, and he fears God. And if he's tempted to evil, he tends to turn away. And if he sins, he confesses, he makes right. He is that kind of a dude. 
So to be clear, God commends Job and invites scrutiny of Job's life and worship. It's not the accuser, but it's the enthroned and sovereign God. John Chrysostom, um, in church history, we know him as, as one of the greatest preachers. Um, and he says, many men, when they see any of those who are pleasing to God suffering, anything terrible, are offended. Not knowing that those especially dear to God, it belongeth to endure these things. Sorry about the belongeth, right? But that's, that's, that's how our English goes, right? Um, we are offended that godly people would suffer. And Christism is saying, wait a minute. Isn't that weird that we're offended by that when the book of Job in particular would demonstrate that it is those that are most commendable that are most likely to be tested. God invites such scrutiny over the godliness of the person of Job. So God holds court and in that court, Satan is called to present himself. And as he does, God commends Job in Satan's face, knowing that it will initiate a number of things. Satan doubts Job. That's kind of putting it softly. I don't know how to put, he's, he's cynical. I, I, I don't know how to put cynical as a verb. He cynicizes Job, right? He does. That's what he does. He's a skeptic of his character. And verse 9 says this, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. He is skeptical about Job's, right, his commendation. Because he's saying, yeah, but isn't it because you have done so much nice things for him? Who wouldn't be glad of you if they were so blessed? One writer says this, cynicism is the essence of the satanic. That's good. This is what he means by that. Satan believes that nothing and no one is genuinely good. Neither Job, right, in his disinterested piety, nor God in his disinterested generosity. He's cynical. He's sure that underneath all of that goodness, there is something that is not right. There's a false motive. You take away the good stuff, let's see what he's made of. Faith in God's goodness is the heart of love, of hope, of joy, all those radiant things that we care about in terms of our faith. Cynicism is studied disbelief. It's a mind turned in on malice, looking for excuses to find something terrible, and that is diabolical. That is what the adversary, the devil, what the accuser is all about. He gives him a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, um, shots in terms of uh, why he thinks Job is to be doubted. One, he says, you've hedged him in. You've hedged him in. Does Job, does Job, I said, does Job, does Job, his name is, is Job, does, does Job fear God for no reason? His, his point isn't like, you know, like there's no reasoning. He's, his point is, you know, you're saying that he fears you, and I believe it, but isn't there a reason? And the reason Satan is glad to suggest. Haven't you put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? I mean, you have hedged him in. 
Satan's question is, is it really because God is God that Job is so godly and worshipful? Or is it because he praises and loves you and worships you for a baser reason? Because you are the source of his comfort, his convenience, and his good fortune. Is God so good that he can be loved for himself and not just for his gifts? One commentator asks, Can a man hold on to God when there are no benefits attached? This is is an important question, right? We noted earlier that Job was both a godly man and a diligent man in terms of his devotion. He would offer sacrifices on behalf of his children regularly after they have a festival, you know, after they have a good time celebrating birthdays or whatever it was they're gathering to do. And he would do that because he believed that God needed to be worshipped and he wanted to put that at the forefront of his adult children's minds. But there's an important question for us to ask ourselves. Is God good enough that we would love him regardless of what happens to us? Will you worship him if, and only if, he provides you a fairly happy life? Would you worship him even if, regardless of, your life getting completely derailed? Satan puts, I think, his finger on an important issue for us. And his suggestion is that that prosperity itself is a problem. Prosperity is a problem for the godly. He is insinuating that prosperity is the cause of Job's piety. He's not pious because he actually loves God, honors God, and only cares that God is worthy and believes that he is worthy of worship regardless. He is pious because you give him good stuff. Prosperity is the basis of his piety. And according to Satan, there is no other reason. Listen, this is the challenge of worship, isn't it? We tend to worship well, to think more highly of our God when things are going well, when things are prosperous, successful, and the blessing of God is flowing into our lives. It's a lot easier to talk about God's glories and His wonders when we have ease and protection surrounding us, when we have the hedge around us, right? But would I be a good worshiper? All right? Even if things went wrong. Let me ask you this. Fill in the blank. I would be a much better worshiper of God. Right? I would find more joy, more satisfaction, contentment in God. I would speak of Him more. I would love Him more dearly. If only He would grant me blank. And there's so many things we could fill into that blank. Right? As human beings, they struggle with uh, the flesh and with our, with our own version of what we believe is our dreams and the things that we have to have to be happy. But the question that Satan poses is legitimate. Is prosperity a problem? Will we worship him with our whole hearts regardless of success or failure, regardless of prosperity or poverty, regardless of comfort or trial, of, of joy and happiness or pain? Satan's question is motivated by absolute malice, but it's worthy of consideration. Does God deserve to be worshipped because of His greatness, even if all of our blessings fade and devastations come? Is God absolutely worthy of worship? That's the tension. 
The tension is not even, you know, is God stronger? Is his goodness better than Satan's uh, diabolical evil? Is God's blessing going to overcome Satan's evilness and his evil intentions? That's not the question. The question is, for us as worshipers, is God so worthy that even without his blessings, we find ourselves captive to the sovereign God of this universe because his steadfast love never ends. That's the question of suffering and sovereignty. So, God holds court. He commends Job before Satan. Satan sincerely doubts Job's uh, uh, genuine worship. And so, God authorizes a test. All right. Oh, what's happening right now? I, I, where's my point four? I apologize. You're going to have to imagine... Point four. I, this, I, I know this is my fault and not any of the guys because uh, I must not have put that in there. But point four is this. God authorizes a test. Verse 11 and 12. Now notice the way that I said it. God's the one that authorizes this test. Verse 11. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. This is God speaking, right? Oh, I'm sorry. This is Satan speaking. Uh, he's saying to God, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Right? And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord to do what he desired to do. Satan's suggestion is the first subpoint that I somehow failed to put up there. Right? God is the one authorizing the test, but Satan is the one that suggests it. He suggests a test. Remove the hedge of prosperity. Now, notice the way he says it. I'm going I'm to make note of, of three or four things here. First, Satan's request is for God to move against Job. It's for God to move against Job. It is not ultimately Satan's role to act independent of God's authority. Only to advocate. That's what he is. He's the, he's, he's the advocate you know, on behalf of the devil. Right. Um, by the way, do you guys know the um, the, the origin of uh, of uh, that phrase, the devil's advocate? I mean, you know what that means, right? It's an English idiom. If your English is, you know, it's it's an English idiom. We use it to say that that okay, let me play the devil's advocate, meaning let me throw into our discussion, right, kind of the cynical view of okay, but we could do that, and this bad thing might happen, right? So it's the individual that comes with kind of the bad news perspective of anything we're discussing, the devil's advocate. You know, the source of that is Roman Catholicism. When a deceased individual is trying to be put up for sainthood, beatification or canonization, don't worry about those. The idea is that someone has died, you know, Uncle, Uncle Ben, right? And uh, I liked Uncle Ben, and I think he should be put up to be a saint. Well, why is that so funny? Uncle Ben could be a saint. I want him to be a saint, right? And so we start gathering, and the church starts gathering all of these things that affirm his sainthood, his godliness, his sacrifice, etc., as kind of the positive case for sainthood. But the papacy, or the, the Roman Catholic Church, will also assign an officer to be the devil's advocate. His entire task is to research this individual's life and to see if there's cause, right? If there's cause for them to say, no, this guy had some skeletons in his closet, 
There's a reason that he should not be a saint. He's the adversarial role. This is what Satan is doing. He's the adversarial role, but he is not an independent actor. He's the one that suggests the test, yes, but he doesn't just go, oh, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to test this fool. He, he doesn't have that authority. He, in fact, he says to God, why don't you stretch out your hand? Do you notice that? He's going to say, I'm going to stretch out my hand. Is that cool with you? He's not even suggesting that he be the instrument in that. He doesn't have that right. He is saying, if you stretched out your hand, God of the universe, and touch all that he has, he would curse you to your face. He is, he is rebellious in his attitude, suggesting that anyone would curse God to his face, all that kind of stuff. He is uh, impertinent, no question. But he still recognizes that it must be God's hand and not his own. There's a strong note of impertinence, rebellious arrogance, and, and divisiveness here. Div, dis, I think in a different word, sorry. It's like, it's like he is saying, I know better than the all-knowing God. But I'm not capable of moving against him just to speak to you. And his charge is that Job will curse you. The idea of cursing is, is you, you need to make this simple. It doesn't mean that he utters some magnificent blasphemy. It means that he out loud with his mouth will say that God, right, is evil or that God, I guess that is blasphemous, right? God is not good. Will he cry out against God's character? Will he speak ill of God, the God of the universe? And Satan's suggestion is you should test him. You should stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And I'm pretty certain, in fact, he doesn't say I'm pretty certain. He says he will curse you to your face. And let me say this, right? Satan's the one that requests God to move in this direction. He's the one that suggests the test. He's the one that claims that Job will speak against God's character. And I will say this, it's logical. It's logical. His motives are clearly malicious, but his argument is sound. How do you know, how can you separate out his worship from the hedge you place around his prosperity? How do you know? There's no, no public way to establish the nature of Job's piety that is better than remove all of his stuff. Remove everything. Let's test it out. One scholar points out perceptively that the converse can also be true. If there were a poor man and he was exceptionally pious, his test would be, give him great fortune. Let's see if he still remembers his God. Right? Like, like the stuff, or the lack of the stuff, the, the blessing or the lack of these material blessings is, is actually a test of an individual's worship, their godliness, their devotion. Right? There's a logical aspect to his suggested test. Remove the hedge of prosperity. Let's see what he's actually made of. It is diabolical, right? Because what will Satan get out of it? Well, at the very least, he might be able to see a good man's life destroyed. And on top of that, he gets to do what he wants to do so desperately, and that's to insinuate that this God is not really that good. I mean, that was exactly what happens in Genesis 3, when he speaks to Eve and he says, are you serious? You're saying to me, Eve, God made all of these trees. And then he says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Is that what he's saying? 
See, the diabolical nature is that he would like to see everything undone, everything good undone, and he would do it with lies and with half-truths. Did God say that Eve and Adam should not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course not. They were to to eat from every tree minus one. But see, the right emphasis, right? The, The right accusation, and you start to steer this in a direction that suggests that God is not that good or God is not that powerful. Saying for all his malice, he is acting in an official capacity of devil's advocate in the court. He is necessary part. He is an instrument in the hands of a sovereign God who is working all things to its glory. It's funny how we, in our humanness, try to harness God for the good of our own lives. It's like the force. You know, I want God to be like the force in me. And you remember the, the last movies? Like the force was like crazy. Like you could like reach into like your bedroom and go get an apple or, right? Like it just went off the rails. Don't get distracted. The idea is that we, we want blessings to flow. And when they do, God is so good. He is so near to me, you know? Oh man, I got engaged. God is a good God, right? Like, and again, that's not wrong for us to, to give him praise for every good ble- blessing that he gives us. But the question is, can you worship him in spite of the lack of his blessings? When pain arrives, how do we typically look at God? Oh God, where are you? How could you do this to me? Man, if you just give me these things, I would say God is so good, Right? We are not just fickle. We are fickle in a way that is always trying to usurp authority from God to ourselves. We treat his worth based on his blessing to us. And it's all backwards. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing of your faith, that when all things are damaged, difficult, hurting, and lost, that we still rejoice in the God who is our God and His worth is beyond anything precious in this life. If that's the case, then our, then our faith becomes praise and glory and honor to the name of Jesus. The testimony to a watching world is not so much if God prospers us, how well do we worship? It's when everything is wrong, can we still worship? God authorizes this test. Satan suggests it, but God authorizes it. Point B that is mysteriously disappeared from there is the Lord's authorization. Verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and thus the tragedies will begin. We need to recognize that it was Satan's request for God to stretch out God's hand against Job. And the Lord says, okay, I'll do it, but I'll do it through you. He assigns this task to Satan. But he restricts what he may do. He says all that he has, all that Job has, you can touch, but not Job's life. It said, God literally says, only against him do not stretch out your hand. 
Satan is like this cranky, rebellious agent, right? Who'd like to do bad things, but recognizes that God is still sovereign. He's not a separate, independent, evil power in this universe, a rival to the throne of God, not at all. He only does as the Lord allows. And it's God that authorizes this test. So see, we've been talking about suffering and the sovereignty of God. Let me run through just a few few verses. And if you want this later, you could get it from me. Um, But these are just verses talking about God's sovereignty. Because we're talking about his sovereignty. And you might be asking as a Christian, like, well, how sovereign is he? Like, how about the drop of a pencil? If I decide right now to pick this up and drop it, is he sovereign over that? If I kick over this lectern, right, is he sovereign over that act? Well, let's look at some verses, right? He seems to be sovereign over random things. If you can read that first one, it's Proverbs 16, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision from the Lord. The Lord knew. Not only did he know, but apparently the decision of those dice is from the Lord. Random things. That's kind of crazy. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Rulers of this entire world, emperors, presidents, right? Mayors, all authority and human beings. It's like God could turn on the faucet and go, okay, let's make it go this way, right? Let's make it go there. He controls the hearts of human authorities, the hearts of kings. The third one, is Proverbs 19.21. Over the daily life and plans that we make, Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God is the one that purposes. And even though I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to do this, God purposes something in that. Will I know exactly what He purposes? Not necessarily, because I'm not Him, and I don't have the divine mind, but He is in absolute control. How about this? We looked at this when we studied through Romans. Romans 9, 15 through 16, over our salvation. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God chooses whom he's going to save apart from anything that the human being can do or say or act. He does it independently, sovereignly. How about over life and death? Look at Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Who kills? God kills. Who wounds? God wounds, and he also makes alive and heals. How about over the death of Jesus? Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to... According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Listen, it was the active work of lawless men, but Jesus was only delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 4.27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, sinners both along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Who is in control of the death of Jesus? God is. How about over... Oh, sorry, I missed Isaiah. Isaiah 45, 7. Over evil, 
Scripture says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I create calamity. That applies to Job. I am the Lord who does all these things. And finally, in a more general sense, Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? In Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. That's the throne room scene we've seen. He does all that he pleases. So what does it say about our suffering? I'm going to try to wrap this up here. How does it help us to know that God has ordained even the painful loss and trials of life? Well, on the one hand, it doesn't mean that those pains are not real. Job, we were going to look at next time, Job is, is going to feel an overwhelming experience of pain and loss and suffering to a degree that, that I hope none of us have to ever face. He didn't have our perspective of seeing what's happening in heaven, that God is absolutely in control. He has to work that out merely by faith. He only knows what is happening to him in the worst day of his, of his existence. I want to say his earthly existence, but in all of existence, it would be his worst day. And when he is under that pain, that pain is real. But what God's sovereignty means for him and us is that even in that momentary, and I say momentary, because it's not eternal, that suffering is under the hand of God. It's not random. It's not capricious. It's not governed. It may not be clear to us why, and this may be hard to hear, but it's because God has ordained it. But because he's sovereign and has ordained it, it cannot be your forever if you have placed your faith in Christ. For Job, God intends, in the book of Job, God intends to rescue Job unto eternity. He is talking about suffering that he allows for a short period of his existence. There will be no day, right? Let me say it this way. As bad as things get, nothing bad will occur to Job once his life ends. We know at the end of Job, he gets everything doubled. But that's not the point of the story. The story is that God is sovereign, and it's not just that he blesses at the end. It's that he confirms Job's faith and his worship and his devotion. And, he, and in God's sovereign mind, he never forsakes Job, because even if Job should die, God is rescuing him. He will give him eternity. He never forgets him nor ignores him. And even in the midst of suffering, he abides with us and is for us unto eternity. So what happens in the moment is for the moment. And if some of you guys here today, if you think about your own testimony, how you came to faith, you would clearly identify some pain, some circumstantial loss, a tragedy, a downturn of fortune that God used to rescue your soul. This is the way that God works in this broken world. He is in control and he's sovereign and he means it all for good and his eternal good far outweighs all the difficult momentary struggle of this life. That is how we understand suffering and sovereignty. He is sovereign. Our suffering is real. But he has never forgotten about us and his promises a hold unto eternity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace to teach us. And Lord, we're going to struggle with this, this theme, this struggle the entire time. But help us and our hearts to be open so that we would honor you. In Jesus' name.